Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Kamran Mirza of Loyola University, speaks with Professor Emeritus of the University of Washington, Dr. Melissa Upton. We'll hear their conversation on mentorship, wellness, diversity, inclusion, and cultural courage. You can find Dr. Mirza on Twitter at K-M-I-R-Z-A and Dr. Upton on Twitter at MelissaUpton7. Now here's your host, Dr. Mirza. Welcome to the PathPod podcast. In this episode of Beyond the Scope, we will be talking to Dr. Melissa Upton, Professor Emeritus of Pathology at the University of Washington in Seattle, where she has served in numerous leadership roles. Dr. Upton completed her residency training at Northwestern University Medical School and Northwestern Memorial Hospital, after which she worked at the Children's Hospital Boston as a fourth-year resident and clinical fellow in the Department of Pathology. Following this, she spent several years as a research fellow at the Children's Hospital Boston and also in the pathology division at the National Cancer Center Institute in Tokyo, Japan. Dr. Upton is a past president of the ASCP, well-known mentorship guru and wellness advocate, and an amazing friend and human being. My name is Kamran Mirza. You can find me on Twitter at K-M-I-R-Z-A. Dr. Upton can be found on Twitter at MelissaUpton7 all one word. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Upton. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Wonderful. So we are excited to hear from you. There are lots of pearls and words of wisdom that you know, you've been giving to us over the years. Can I ask you about Melissa Upton growing up? What were your inspirations? Kind of tell us, you know, take us back to you as a young individual, younger individual, you know, as you were growing up, what inspired you and what eventually led you to become a pathologist? Well, I was one of the lucky people in the sense that my dad is an experimental pathologist. So I always knew about pathology. And actually, there are quite a few people in pathology whose parents were pathologists. And I often feel sad that people who don't have a pathology relative don't necessarily hear about the discipline. But my dad was an experimental pathologist. When I was one year old, one years old, he we moved, my family moved from Ann Arbor, where my dad did his his med school and residency to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And Oak Ridge was an atomic research facility. And my dad was um, in the department of biology. So he did not practice surgical or autopsy pathology. It was all experimental. Mm -hmm. And his discipline was a radiation pathology. He looked at the effects of radiation on enormous numbers of mice following the subsequent generations after the F1 group were exposed to radiation. And that scope of experimentation could never be done today because it would cost way too much. Right. But I used to accompany my dad out to the lab every Saturday and Sunday. They had to round and do necropsies on any of the animals that had died. And I used to go with him and watch him do mouse necropsies, starting from the time I was really quite young. So I was always very interested in science. My mom was an artist. So there comes the visual part of pathology. My mom had trained in design and art. And she did not work outside the home until I was 14 when she went back to school and got a PhD in Spanish literature. So I had that inspiration of a person going to school for an advanced degree while I was in high school. But she did a lot of volunteering in the community. She taught adult literacy. Oak Ridge at the time was East Tennessee, it, where we were, it was a very segregated community, but my parents refused to go to any restaurants or facilities that did, that did not serve people of all backgrounds. And my parents were very involved in a quiet way. They're not, they weren't really big activists, but they, we were very clear about boycotting businesses that, that did not serve diverse people. My father's chief scientist in his lab was a black woman. And my parents always taught me to treat everyone with deep respect. There was a lot of poverty in East Tennessee. And my parents were adamant that the, that I was extremely lucky to be born as a white American and that everyone that we lived with or lived around in the neighborhood and in our community were as good as anyone else, and the difference were opportunities. So I really grew up with a very keen sense of opportunities. My dad himself 
was a scholarship student through through college. And my mom, uh, her father was missing in action, was lost in the South Pacific. And she grew up, after he was killed, her mom had to go back and she was actually picking apples as a migrant worker around Ann Arbor. They had a place where they were living, but my mom went to work in a bookstore. Her sister went to work. They all worked in order to support the family. So even though they came from an educated background, they were shoved into poverty. So that was another really important lesson that I always learned from my grandmother in particular. She said, don't, she remembered going and talking. She talked to me a lot about working in migrant working groups, picking apples. And she said, everyone there was as smart or as good as I, they didn't have the opportunities I had. And when I lost everything, when my husband was killed, I recognized how fragile material things are. So that was, those lessons were very keen for me from my family of origin. What an amazing window to the world of Dr. Upton. I mean, that itself, like, it's, uh, you know, there's so much to unpack there. Wonderful lessons, which you've obviously been, you know, they, they, they should be so proud of you because you have been the excellent example of all of those lessons learned. I mean, to us, for example, who didn't know your parents, we see you as this beacon of diversity and inclusion and mentorship and like all of the things that you learned during your childhood. I, I even if I, if I wanted to, I would have guessed that that's how the childhood was, but th this was like a, a picture perfect. So when I was doing my PhD, um, you know, after medical school, I used to take my eldest daughter to the lab with me as well. So oh, fingers good. crossed, maybe, maybe, maybe she, there is a hope yet for her to become a pathologist. Uh, well, no, I have another anecdote that might be worth sharing for the diversity and inclusion piece. Of course. Um, my parents did not want to send me to public high school because it, Oak Ridge High School was a huge school, and they were afraid that we would get lost in that school. So they sent me and my sister and brother actually to a small private school, a very good school called Webb School of Knoxville. We had to drive a bus about 18 miles away. But at that time, so I was uh, I was 13 when I started Web or, or 12 even, so 1962, 1963, something like that. Uh, the girls' school was extremely strong linguistically. We did French and Latin and English, so lots of communication skills. But the math and science were really quite weak. We never finished the algebra book in first-year algebra. So when we got to second-year algebra, we spent most of the year on the beginning part of the book just to get the skills. We never finished the book in any of those math courses. So then I was sent to uh, school. Basically, when I, when I went to University of Rochester as an undergraduate, I walked into the pre-medical school classes. I wanted to be a doctor. And I realized I would not succeed. I didn't have the math skills to do the, there was no introduction to calculus. You either did calculus or you didn't at that period of time. So I had to drop out of pre-med that first day. I knew I couldn't possibly hack calculus. Plus a lot of the people taking calculus had already had it in high school. They were doing it for an easy A, repeating it for an easy A. Similarly, chemistry, physics, there was absolutely no way without, my, without strong math skills that I would have been successful. And in that sense, even though I went to excellent schools in that era, they were girls' schools that were weaker in the math and science. I really identify and understand what it's like to go to a, a tribal high school or an urban high school where no matter how bright someone is, if they don't have the rigorous education in those skills, they cannot thrive when they go to college and they're thrown into classes, particularly with people who are competing, having already a very strong foundation. So at Rochester, there were kids who'd gone to magnet science schools in New York City. So you can only imagine the disparity between skill sets. So I majored in history. And in order to go to medical school, I had to go back. And I did two years at University of Illinois Chicago Circle, which you know, living in Chicago. And at that time, it was primarily a commuter school. I think it still is. But because it served such a diverse group of people who had gone to many different urban high schools in Chicago, it actually had the rudimentary introductory math that I needed. So I literally started with 
pre-algebra, multiplying fractions and logarithms. And then I did algebra one, then I did algebra two, then I did pre-calculus, then I did calculus. At that point, I aced the calculus class. But what I often tell people from diverse backgrounds who don't have strong high school skills is this is not about IQ. This is about applying the seat of the pants to the seat of the chair and acknowledging the skill set gaps. This is not intelligence gaps. These are skill set gaps. And you have to spend, it takes time and money. And this is what many people don't have. I actually worked while I did these courses for pre-med. I was working at the same time. But I would, they would assign 20 problems. I would do all of them. And I, you know, all, all the, and I would took, took out extra math books from the library. So if I were assigned 20 problems, I might have done 200, 250 before I do the next chapter because I was bound and determined to get the foundation I needed that then I could clip through those problems on the MCAT. But I have told people over and over, this is truly about these enormous skill set gaps. And if you don't have a strong high school, it's very difficult to compensate for that. And those skill set gaps continue. So it's one of the reasons I'm also very passionate about holistic interviewing for medical school and for residency, because a score on a test does not tell you whether someone can think well and ask good questions. It simply measures their speed of processing of a certain type of questions. And that's not nothing, but it doesn't necessarily reflect their talent, their ability to ask scientific questions or any of those other things. So that's that's part of my story. But the other part of my story, Kamran, is that because I did a history degree, I think that those history back that history background probably was one of the best things I ever did for leadership preparation because I have a really good appreciation of context of judgment making in a big scope of time. And I still read history and I still read things about how do, how did and do leaders make decisions that are often ambiguous, lots of complexity in the world. The world is not simple. So how people make decisions that are good or bad, where they go off the rails or where they read things well, I still do that a lot, but I think those those skills, those big perspective skills are extremely helpful for leaders. So I also encourage people, don't subspecialize so much that you can't read that stuff if that's what you're interested in, if you like that, if you like to think about how do people, how do people make a dis- good decisions and how do people live their lives well. You are a past president of ASCP, and one of the jewels of your crown during your presidency, obviously, was the creation of the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force and the committees, and I'm honored to serve on one of them as well. And I can see now your inspiration and your personal interaction with those types of disparities and seeing that, how that probably molded the way. What is your goal and your vision? What would would be your wish for the Diversity and Inclusion Committee as it pertains to ASCP or even broader? What would you like to see and how can we get there? That's such a great question. Well, first of all, you you know you've achieved diversity and inclusion when everyone has the opportunity to get the skills to succeed at something that they're passionate about doing. Now, I could practice all day and I'll never be a concert level bass player. I don't play the bass, but you know, there's certain things I can never be a professional basketball player. I mean, there's certain things, no matter what my passion would be, I will not get there, but it shouldn't be about lack of opportunity to get the chance to try something or get the skills to the best of your ability and then find out if that's the direction or not for your career. But it's funny, people have been asking me, how will we know when we have been successful? And this is this is probably, I don't mean this to be a facile or sarcastic answer, but when you don't have to be absolutely superb to become a leader, right now, for instance, in, where you have a group of people who dominate any given society, those people are allowed to be mediocre and, and have a managerial position. But if you want to be a leader in pathology or in politics or in anything in the United States, 
if you're a person of color or a woman, you have to be superb, not mediocre. And yet you have a lot of mediocre senators and congressmen, et cetera, who come from the dominant group in the, in the United States. And, and so I think that that sounds like a probably a, a cynical answer, but why should you have to be the very best of the best to even have a chance to have a leadership position? That I doesn't make sense because how do you learn things? You learn things by giving the, being given the opportunity to try things. So if you've already have to prove yourself before you can actually have that opportunity, that's, that's backwards and that's skewed. Right, right. And people don't, I mean, people don't question the fact that we have, we put young, untested, and untried white men into positions like police chief. Why do we not let young men of color, young women of color, women of any background have some of these opportunities to try because you don't get the skills unless you have the chance to try these things. Absolutely. You no, know, as an immigrant, you know, to this country, I totally, it, it resonates with me because for me, my wife and all of the friends that I know, I mean, we've always strived to be the best of the best because that's the way the next step will come. And while I don't regret that, and I'm glad that we've always strived to be the best of the best, we're still very fortunate because we've had lots of opportunities that this country has provided. And, and I can see now that if you don't have the opportunities, you can even strive to be better than the best and not get anywhere. And so all of these, like you were saying, this is it's a complicated world. It's not black and white. There's a lot of gray analog kind of area. And the type of initiatives like what we what we started at the ASCP and beyond that hopefully will start chipping away um, at those differences and till the time that those differences don't exist anymore, which which, which would be the goal. And it's difficult to Kamran, and you know this well. If you feel that if you screw up, you're screwing up the chances for the next foreign medical graduate, that's an extra kind of pressure. People who are trying to prove themselves, but also representing a whole group of people. So if they've had the sense that if I screw up, no other woman will ever be president of ACP for another. I mean, I was the first woman for 10 years and I'm going, oh my gosh, you know, I don't want to wait another decade. Thank goodness that's not the case. Dr. Sanford is president now and she's right. wonderful. But the reality is you've got an extra set of pressures when you don't come from the dominant group because you feel, most people feel that people are watching, watching to be make sure you're doing a good job and sometimes taking glee when you don't. And those things are painful and it's an extra level of stress. Absolutely. I we recently I've read and watched uh, Becoming by Michelle Obama and, oh, and yes. I totally, you know I can totally uh, totally relate. Like we joke, not that it's a casual thing, but we joke about this that my wife uh, Sarah and I don't didn't do well in our residencies. We would have screwed it up for the Al Khan University graduates for the you know the next ten years. Or you know my religious background, I I, I almost right. joke sometimes when people say, "Oh yeah, I met a Pakistani guy," and I was like, "I hope he was nice. I hope he was great." You know because it's. And we do it jovially, right? Just, you know, within friends. But it's true. Those pressures do exist. Those pressures are real. Those pressures they are, are real. real. And again, I had another personal experience that it gives me a, some small glimpse of that, which is that I lived in Japan for two years and as a foreign guest research fellow. And I had a child. My son was little when we went over. He was 17 months old. And I used to commute with him on my lap and on the bus to work. And then he would go to daycare. But when I came home to the United States, I said to somebody, for the first time, I could, I could actually say something to him in the grocery store or scold him without feeling like I was representing all American child rearing. You know, right. you know, there's this kind of sense of scrutiny because people, I mean, I don't think they were judging me, but they, here's this little boy who was speaking fluent Japanese because he was in a Japanese daycare. So he drew a lot of attention and people were always watching us whenever we were on the subway. We were the only gaijin, the only non-Japanese family on the subway or on the bus because I was going to work, you know, with my child. And I was constantly scrutinized because I really, I sort of have this feeling a little bit about what it's like to be different, to not right. be in the dominant group. I also went to go to buy food 
And some of the labels at that time were, there was no English labeling. So I remember thinking I was buying mayonnaise once and it was hand lotion. (laughs) That experience of being illiterate was actually, you know, how many people ever get that taste as an educated person of what it's like to be illiterate? That was a superbly interesting experience of, you know, I think about the world really differently when I walk around, even in the United States, I go, could someone read that sign or could someone understand that icon if they don't read, you know? No, that's, you know, it's so true. And I, I often say that I think that the way to world peace is that if we in our early 20s or, like, you know, kind of late 20s all go and live for a year in another country, wherever it is. I agree with you. I think I that, you know, that would be the answer to world peace in the sense that we would realize that everyone has the same weird uncle, the same kind of yes. overbearing aunt, the wonderful grandmother, you know, our yes. arguments are all the same. You know, our bureaucracies are all the same too, as you right, know. You wait right. for your visa for all hours and hours, whatever, wherever you are in the world, you wait for your visa. Just be, there's no one in the office, and they just keep you waiting. You know? That's exactly right. I mean, you know, I, I had the a good fortune of going to Japan a few years ago to give a talk, and I remember on the way, just before I was flying back, I was get, get you know, I just had like a virus. It was kind of obvious, and and I went into a store, and I couldn't, and I couldn't understand, like you know, and I couldn't explain. Uh, what it was, and then I then I saw that there was a little uh, packet of medication, and like there was the side profile of a human, and there was a star on the nose and a star on the throat, and I was like, this is what I need, and hopefully I will survive this, you know. And it was, you know, and I still have that packet. It was a very strong medication. I was like completely blown away, but I felt much better. Um, and so, no, I agree with you. I think that those experiences are extremely important. I remember. Uh, during medical school, I grew up in England, but during medical school, I came uh, to Boston to do uh, research for a few months over the summer. And while I could speak English, having grown up in England, it wasn't that I wasn't comfortable speaking English. But I remember the first time I got into a line to get a sandwich made, you know how like it wasn't Subway, it was like a cafeteria line. And everybody was very quick at making their decisions. And the people who were serving were also very like kind of impatient. And I remember I didn't ever think about whether I wanted provolone or, you know, like a cheddar cheese. Like I didn't know. And so I was pausing probably much more than other people because I was still a little hesitant about whether I'm doing the right thing or not, despite my English being pretty good, you know. And I remember the woman getting so frustrated and impatient, like, what the heck? You don't know what you want. And I'm like, I'm, you know, for me, this was a very big decision. And and obviously, I mean, I I don't hold anything against them. It was a busy line, but but yeah, being being the outsider or the other, I think, uh, as an educated individual, uh, really does open your eyes. It's really important. Everybody should have to do that. Everybody should have to have that. And similarly, they have that experiment where they make people um, spend a day in a wheelchair trying to get around, or or put put you on crutches and put a cast on and say you can't put the cast down and just try to navigate the world with a disability. It's incredibly interesting and difficult. Difficult. Absolutely. Your dad was an experimental pathologist and mother is an artist, which I think is the perfect recipe, the ingredients to put together a fantastic pathologist leader like yourself. So you entered medical school. Did you know from the start that pathology is the way to go? or I, I actually thought I would do something in patient care because I really love people. And my dad's very introverted. So I wasn't sure if he became a pathologist, you know, that old stereotype about pathologists being so introverted. But I did know that I was going to do an elective in pathology because he was a pathologist. And I also loved all, I was pulling the textbooks off the shelf when even when I was a very little kid and fascinated by all the beautiful images of pathology. So I actually liked every single clinical rotation. I liked everything. Internal medicine, I loved surgery. I loved OBGYN. I loved them all. And that was also very difficult because back to my history degree, I'm really a generalist. I really like everything. But lo and behold, pathology is extraordinarily general. You, right. Especially in if you do cytopathology, autopsy pathology, when I was training, surgical pathology was not nearly as specialized as it is now. I could see every kind of disease process and still be a specialist in pathology, but the visual part was really important. I will, honestly, I will tell you that I was very torn for a while because I loved surgery and I actually graduated early. I didn't take vacation time. So I finished in December 
my class graduated actually the following June. And the surgery department at Northwestern, where I went to medical school, told me that they had had several people drop out of the surgical internship. So they offered me the internship through June, and then I could start pathology in July. They already knew I had committed to pathology. But they said, if you fall in love with surgery, you can just stay on in the internship class. And I chair- I went and talked to the chair at Northwestern in pathology where I had committed and said, you know, if I fall in love with surgery, I just want you to know there's a chance I'll just stay there. But it was very quick for me to discover that what I had loved about surgery as a student was the fact that you felt you did the history and the physical exam and you got to see the pathology in the OR because the actual procedure of how to take out a gallbladder didn't interest me. And a lot of surgical academic research is very important to push the envelope on the technical achievement or the ma- or the management of patients after surgical complications or surgical procedures. Whereas it was really clear from that experience in surgery that my curiosity was why did they get sick and what's causing this disease. So that But, you know, some people need the time to make those decisions. And that's another thing I will always encourage students. There's no race here. If you truly love pathology and you're also torn and you're thinking about internal medicine, there's nothing lost by taking a year of medicine or vice versa. If you take a year of pathology and you decide you don't want it, you're not weaker when you apply to go to surgery or medicine. Although I've almost never seen anyone leave pathology to go back. I've seen people take the year of clinical and then come into pathology. But people feel so rushed to make a decision now. And I I think it's because the culture has changed to, you know, kind of push people and rush, you know, you even when you think of subspecialties within pathology, you know, second year of residency, you have to kind of decide, especially if you're doing some of the so-called very competitive fellowships. You have to have an answer ready and your research lined up. Otherwise, you will fall by the wayside. And I think that, you know, so I, your point about surgery versus pathology hits home with me uh, because, you know, we wrote, we wrote a tongue-in-cheek kind of comment uh, com- commentary about brain versus brawn in that people are very uh, seduced by the sexiness of surgery, which I, which I can totally see. Uh, but then they realize that it's actually the intellectual curiosity of what's happening to the patient, which within surgery clerkships is all kind of put together in like one packet, but you can't dissect it until you actually go do a pathology elective. And so I'm very glad that the surgery department at Northwestern didn't steal you over and that you that you stuck with pathology. But you're absolutely correct. Like we in, in our residency program here, we have individuals who came over from anesthesiology from internal medicine, and actually someone who came in from halfway through her surgical residency. I agree with you that, you know, for some, you require that amount of time because none of our exposure in pathology is that great, which I think is a great segue to talk about the pipeline. I'd really like to get hear your thoughts, especially now that things are virtual this year. And I've heard so often from people that, well, you know, I knew somebody in the lab, or my parent was in the lab, or I knew a pathologist, or even a personal experience with, well, my grandmother got cancer, and I remember thinking, what is cancer? And so if you don't have those types of experiences, how do we, as a, as a medical field, inculcate like the proper changes to the pipeline? Well, I think it's a really great question. I think there, there are several places we need to start. We need to be working earlier with biology, chemistry, counselors, you know, every department in the undergraduate college, they have career counselors in those. And I don't think most of those departments have really good information provided to the counselors about career options in the fields of pathology. And I'm talking about career options from histologists, pathology assistants, medical laboratory specialists, all of those career paths, because I probably know at least 12 people who went into pathology, went to medical school after they became medical laboratory specialists and worked in the laboratory for a while. So most people who go to college and get a degree in biology, it's very difficult to get a good job right out of college with a biology degree. But if you have a a medical laboratory specialist degree, you can walk into any lab practically in the United States 
and get a really good job that's a professional level job where you're exposed to pathology and exposed to what the laboratory can do. And I think that we under, we as pathologists should be bringing more people into the different career paths along the career ladders through the entire spectrum of careers that we have in our discipline in pathology and laboratory medicine. And you know that because you run a program, trains people. At the high school level, I think we also need to do more to help parents understand and students these career opportunities and choices. The military has pretty good training programs in the laboratory sciences as well. So people who don't have money for college or medical school, we can work with the military training programs to help people understand these options because a lot of people go into the military wanting to get training for a job and they want a job out of high school. But there are good jobs in the lab through the military. And we, we, don't do, we don't do enough about helping high school graduates learn about these. Because becoming a tank driver, working in artillery, let's face it, there are very few civilian jobs right. that connect to that. But if you become a blood banker in the military, my goodness, you have a great option for... Absolutely, absolutely. And then in terms of other elements of the pipeline, for pathology in particular, I don't think we're necessarily thinking about the right groups of people. So we think about the science majors, but as I said to you, I was a history major. We don't approach people in languages, for instance. If you think about computers and informatics and how much we use informatics in the lab, People who are language majors, why don't we go after them? Pathology is a language. Pathology is a, I, I, I always language. say pathology is a language. It, it is, is like a language. Know, I, I always tell my junior residents that, you know, no, knowing normal histology is so important because that is the alphabet that you use uh, in order to interpret pathology. Yeah. And I always say that, you know, if you had, like, for example, uh, uh, a word, like a, an alphabet soup scramble, and you could see a word inside that alphabet scramble, you only know you can read that word because you know the alphabet. And otherwise, if you you know if it's just an alphabet soup, then you then you can't figure out a word. And so, yeah, absolutely, pathology is a language, hundred percent. I agree. I have to say, my Latin, Latin and French were huge, huge, huge helps to go into medical school. But I have quite a few. I've had over the years, maybe because I go after them when they come and interview people who have a classics background coming into pathology, they do really, really well in pathology because they love the history and they love, it's not just the language, there's the history. You know, I, I just finished a book by Frank Gonzalez Cruzzi about the way body parts are preserved called um, Suspended Animation. It's a wonderful book, but he talks about, you know, the history of pathology and how it developed from Bologna and from Galen and Aristotle, but that's just extremely interesting. But those people do really well. Another group that we don't go after are engineers. A lot of people yeah. start engineering in college and they don't necessarily finish engineering. But we ought to go to all the entry-level engineers and talk about how we do a huge amount with engineering, whether it's industrial engineering, looking at lean processing and the way workflows are. We do a lot of that in pathology. And then all of the I mean, the laboratory is just full of applications, working with humans, how do humans work with machines? People don't recognize how much informatics is, is only a tiny bit technology and, and computers, not tiny, but your sociology background, the psychology background of looking at how people actually work. How do people actually use information? So psych majors, sociology majors, engineering majors, those are the people we should be bringing in pathology because we're using all of those skills and we're not even selling this to these people that are you interested in how humans work and, and how to use artificial intelligence to help people ask better questions of visual information, artists, you know, all those groups of students, we don't even go after them. We don't even think about them as being our, you know, you know, diamonds in the rough. Who absolutely, really absolutely. Yeah, and you know, and it's interesting because we always considered those individuals who were biology majors who went the regular route and became medical students. Interestingly, they never consider us, <laughs> and so right. you know, because they don't consider that that the, the you know being a pathologist is a is a viable and amazing um, route of becoming a physician for patient care. 
in, in the setting that we do it. And so, no, that's actually absolutely brilliant. I, I definitely will follow up with you on, on that idea because I think that it's very important. And as you mentioned, you know, having started a medical laboratory science program myself, I think that it really opened my eyes to the fact that similar to how there's no exposure to pathology as a profession within, the, you know, the medical sciences, I think that there is no exposure to medical lab sciences, uh, you know, post biology, like, let's even forget about the other ones, which be a little bit of a stretch right now, which I agree, we should, you know, open up to. But one of the things that we started doing was going to kind of health fairs and health professions, advisors, and they had no idea. They don't. And, and a simple thing such as saying, well, you know, well, your blood smear, which tells you whether it's leukemia versus a virus and viral infection, uh, is looked at by a medical laboratory scientist, and they have no idea. They have no idea. The other thing I think we really ought to be thinking about, Kamran, is, is if, like me, someone has to work through every vacation in order to have the money for their courses, which I had to do during all that pre-med stuff, we ought to be looking at holiday paid electives in pathology. So a department to pay for someone for an entire summer is really expensive. But if we could come up with Christmas break or, you know, Thanksgiving break or a couple day break paid exposures to pathology and you bring people in from high school or college and you have them do work for part of the day, so maybe they file slides or they help catch up your all your logging. I mean, with COVID, people have all this login stuff that they have to do, reporting. Whatever. Every department has some stuff sitting around that hasn't been taken care of, whether it's scanning right. people's research files, which you have to keep for 20 years. I don't care. You have a little bit of that, and then you have them go to your resident conferences, and you let them sit in on certain selected rounds, multidisciplinary tumor boards. You let them go in a lab and do watch or be involved with helping to do a root cause analysis, something like that. Right. I think that that would really help some of these students learn about us. But if you paid them, they could actually do this because they cannot afford many people of color, many people of many people who are first generation college students, because poor whites are certainly in that category as well. They can't do these internships that are unpaid and volunteered. That's right. they don't have the money to volunteer for the summer. They need to earn money. So we need to find some ways, and we could even get our private practice partners to help with some of these short paid electives that people can get the exposure. That is a brilliant idea. It's brilliant in its simplicity and its effectiveness. I think that, again, and it goes back to this idea of exposure to our field where that exposure leads to the pipeline improving. And even within medical school, right? I mean, if there is a medical student who is off for a week and has nothing to right. do, can come in you know, participate in what, you know, what could be just like a very menial amount of money, but it would, it would, it would still probably change that individual's life, maybe for the better, or like, I want medical students to make an informed decision. It doesn't have to be that they become a pathologist. That's never been my oh. goal. My goal has always been that they come into the department, learn what they need to learn, and then have a checkbox, which is pathology. And they either cross it or they tick it, you know. But the problem is that I believe right now in medical schools, there's no checkbox for pathology. There is one for psychiatry. There is one for OB-GYN. There is one for surgery. And so when they come into medical school, they know that those are the boxes that they have to either go red or green and they ultimately decide. But pathology is just never even on the list. It's, it's hidden because of its kind of indirect exposure during their clinical years. Um, and so I think that if we were able to provide those opportunities, which, you know, I think many institutions have by way of um, so, like summer scholarships or whatever, but I agree with you, those are kind of big hitters, which may not be accessible to everybody. And these smaller experiences might actually be the answer, Dr. Upton, you're on, you're really on to something here. This is really great. And I think your other point is really well taken. Somehow, because pathology used to have a whole long course in the second year. So I did my my second year at Northwestern, the first quarter of my second year, there were no other courses. It was only pathology all day long. We had lectures in the morning. We had lab all afternoon, every day. I mean, it was a very intensive course in pathology. We used a microscope. We actually saw autopsy. So we had a, we, we had a pretty good sense of what a pathologist does. We did our own blood smears. We had to do some 
some of the lab tests in our lab, but that has completely dried up. So that pathology experience has gone the way of the dodo bird, but nothing has replaced it. And right. we need to fight for more, even if it was simply a week of elective, uh, not elective, but every medical student did a week in pathology. So that's the other thing I totally agree with you that when I'm doing frozen sections and a student comes out, I always say, what are you going into? And they'll say mm -hmm. Orth orthopedics or surgery. Or I, I was going to say orthopedic surgery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'll say to them, okay, um, what's a cassette? What's a right. frozen section? And they don't know the answers. And then I'll go, why don't you think about just doing an elective in pathology? You can still go into orthopedics, but do you know you're going to be working with a pathologist for the rest of your life? Don't you think you might want to know how to read the report? Don't you think you might actually want to know how to order the labs? And they go, yeah. And it's amazing. We actually have a lot of people coming to do pathology at UW who are not going into pathology, but some of them will turn and then come into pathology. But I don't even care if they do. I just want them to be more aware of us as well, because if the clinicians have more sense of who we are, the value we bring, they're also more apt to encourage people to think about the discipline work with us on collaborative things, you know, that's part of the visibility is even more visibility from our clinical colleagues. Absolutely. No, and it's always the simple questions, right? Their inability to answer the simple questions really opens their eyes to the fact that, you know, while there might be something missing in their experience in medical school, and, and I agree with you that it might not be the biggest possible kind of changes. It might be the subtle changes that, you know, really push them uh, in this direction of making an informed decision. Well, one so, of the things we also could do, you know, we could encourage our surgical colleagues to send students out to us for one day of frozen section experience if they're on surgery, you know. Right. With any surgical department, they, they're trying to find didactic activities. If we were willing to take every person on surgical elective for a day when they would do frozens and stand in the gross room shadowing people, that would be a huge win, right? right. When, I was, when I was at Harvard years ago, um, I had set up this elective where every single medical student taking pathology there had to sign up and attend three different tumor boards. It could be at any of the Harvard teaching hospitals. It could be at any discipline. I didn't care if they're going into orthopedics, going to bone tumor board. That's fine, totally fine. But that was also really great because they actually got to see us working in a multidisciplinary setting. It was logistically difficult, which is why the right. program didn't continue after I stopped running it because you had to sign these people up and make sure they had, a, you didn't want 100 people showing up at the same conference. But even something like that, where students in OBGYN, you talk to the course clerkship director, every one of them will go to the GYN tumor board. There are only a handful of students on a given month, and that's a win because they at least get to see us and see pathology and see, get a feeling of what, what we do in a multidisciplinary setting. I mean, if I pivot right now and, and talk about the virtual interview season, I know that you were the pathology residency director and you're still involved in a role in leadership within the pathology residency. What do you think are going to be the biggest obstacles or maybe even the pros of having uh, a virtual interview season this year? Um, I think the hardest part, honestly, is the connection of people one-on-one. -on -one. And we have, the, we have these open houses. but how could I go to an open house and have a have a intense five minute conversation with you? And those right. are even though it's only five minutes, there's a very good feeling in a five minute conversation of whether there's chemistry and whether this is a person you would enjoy working with or not. And so yeah. we need better agility in almost speed dating kind of opportunity for our prospective students to get to know us. And when I used to be the medical school advisor for people interested in pathology, I would always say to them, you know, you know, anyone who's a student listening to this or a resident, when you go on an interview, you're actually really lucky. It's a time in your life when you're doing field trips and you should think of them as field trips. Mm -hmm. If you go into every interview and you don't have the sense that I got to impress them or I'm not going to ever go anywhere, you go, I got lots of choices. I'm just going to be myself here because if I can't be myself here, it's not the place for me. Okay, that's the first thing is that. 
okay, I got plenty of choices. Because you do. If you're a U.S. medical grad, only 30% of residency positions are filled by U.S. grads. You're going to have a choice of good programs. And even if you don't get into one of the ones you apply to, they're great programs every year on the scramble. You're going to get a good training position someplace in the United States. Right. But when you go on these interviews, it's a field trip, and you get to ask questions to the world's leaders in pathology. Some of them aren't leaders yet that you know of because they're young, but they will be. And you get to ask them anything. You get to ask them absolutely anything. So if by the middle of the day, you've run out of questions about the training program, you can have a conversation like the one we're having. You can say, Dr. Mirza, why did you become a pathologist? Or what do you like the most about pathology? Or how do you keep your career life balanced? Or anything you want, you can ask these questions. So you can really get a lot of professional counseling, actually. In your interviews, if you go on 10 interviews, you're, you're basically, basically getting opportunity if you wanted to take it for professional coaching from five to six people times 10 programs. Like where, in your, in your, where else in your life could you go and have that kind of access to these people? And that's the concern I have is it's, it's, if, if we cannot retain some of that personal connection in this interview season, but if we can set up the similar kind of online interviews like this, I'm not sure that's lost. Right. But you can't walk through the halls of the institution and get the feeling like that this one's super intense and this one's much more kind of calm and thoughtful and they're both very good. Just when you were telling the story of Boston, I lived in Boston for 20 years. And people walk faster and talk faster there than any other city in the U.S. It's just part of, <laughs> no, seriously, it's yeah. the tempo of that culture. And that's not a bad thing, but it's a very different tempo from Oklahoma City or San Francisco or Chicago. It's not that Boston's better or worse. It's just aesthetically different. So that right. aesthetic difference that you can feel spending a little bit of time in a city or walking in and out of a building that we can't, we can't translate that well through the zoom. I don't think. I know it's, it's going to be a very big experiment. I think that in general, we hopefully will get the bulk of it correct. And I think that, you know, given what the circumstances we've been, we've been dealt with, I think that it's the best that we can probably do, but I agree with you. I think that the residents starting next year, will we'll get the introduction to the culture and the tempo of the cities that they're choosing to go into. Uh, and I think that by itself, this big experiment in life within you know, the residency world, I think will definitely have an impact on how we proceed in the future with, uh, with these types of interviews and interaction. But you know, also, Cameron, when I was, Dr. Mirza, when I was um, a young pathologist, which was a long time ago, People like yourself who were applying from other countries, they didn't necessarily fly over to interview. That was not possible. Right. And they would just end up in Chicago or end up in Boston, and they made the best of it. I mean, part of we are often in this era so preoccupied with everything has to be set up for my personal comfort. And as we've already talked about, sometimes being thrown into something you didn't expect or a culture that's different from what you're used to is actually the best thing that could ever happen to you. It not, isn't easy, but it teaches you a great deal. So, Absolutely. So here's cheers to lots of learning experiences for people, both institutions and candidates down the road. You know, it's going to be a learning curve for both of them. It will. I have always looked to you for mentorship, and I'm so honored to being your mentee indirectly. And your your lecture at the ASCP meeting and your role and involvement with mentorship and sponsorship has been really, really like something which I look up to. And I think that if I was to ask you what makes you a good mentor, or if I turn the question around and ask you about what your mentors did as you were, you know, going up the ranks uh, that really made a difference, what would your answer be? Like what makes a good mentor? Part of the answer for me is that I'm not the best mentor for everyone because every mentor has <clears throat> their own personal style and their own personal values. But my own passion is to make you the best 
Dr. Kamran Mirza you can possibly be. Right. Not to try to make you me or try to make you someone else. And that takes, first of all, it takes some confidence as a mentor uh, because I, I have great confidence that each person's put on this world with a different set of skills and aptitudes, and that's really precious. And so the, the goal is to help them find who they are if they're not sure. That's, but that, and that, makes it, that also makes it a very interesting journey because no two mentees are the same. So I don't mm -hmm. work with them the same way either. Right. But that's, and I think that that's the real question is, if you're trying to recapitulate someone else's journey, I'm probably not the best, best mentor for you because I'm going to ask you uncomfortable questions to try to help you figure out who you are and how you are different from someone else. So if you just want to be told how to pass this exam and how to get to the next step, well, I can do that. That's very, very easy. Right. But the harder part is, what do you bring to the table that is very unique? Or where does your creativity go? Because that's edgier. It's going to require you to do some edgy work outside of just the, how do I learn this set of tumors and how do I get this published or when do I get this CV revised, right? Right. No, absolutely. I, I, that, that really hits home with me. I think that I've worked with, I've been very fortunate to work with people who were my mentors who were very different from me. And I think that at the time, I couldn't dis distinguish between mentorship and sponsorship. And I think that I've had very good sponsors, which I've been very, very fortunate to have, uh, but actually not as many mentors as I thought. Originally, I thought that I had a bunch of mentors, but I think a bunch of them were just sponsors, which is great. And I don't mean just sponsors as if no, I'm visiting them. It is uh, a different but, relationship. But yeah. I think it's a completely different relationship. And and I think, you know, after hearing from you and, you know, my own kind of leaders here, which who have both sponsored and mentored me, I think that I've really started to understand that difference. So when it comes to sponsorship, what do you look for? Like who would be the perfect person you would want to sponsor? Sponsorship is sponsorship. So for people who don't know the difference, because I honestly didn't know the difference until recently when I read a book called Forget a Mentor, Mentor Find a Sponsor. Sponsors have a personal investment in your career because you're actually working with them on, on something that they champion. So the best example really is an academic project. You ask a faculty member if you can work with her or him on X project. And in order to work on that, you actually have to produce something related to that. And, and yet the product of that then allows you to go to a meeting and be introduced to other people and it allows you to get a publication. So sponsorship for me is pretty straightforward. If somebody's really interested in what I'm working on and I have an opportunity for them to join that project, that's pretty straightforward. I, it's, I don't have a high bar or a high obstacle. It's really more of a shared interest. Mm -hmm. But also a lot in residency, a lot of times it starts with the resident asking a question. Hey, Dr. Mirza, I've noticed that this group of cases seem to have this funny thing going on here. Right. And if it's something that's well known, you can say, oh, yes, and here's the article and you can read about this. But if it's something that you might not have noticed or you've noticed and it hasn't been published, that's the beginning of an opportunity. Um, looking for a sponsor, I would say, is that shared interest in that project. But then it's also really important to understand whether that sponsor is selfish or not. Mm -hmm. For a short-term project, it doesn't matter. For a short-term project, if the sponsor ends up being a malignant person, it's not going to kill you. If it's a residency program and they're just kind of mean and not very nice about timeline on the project. But if you're going in as a graduate student, this is a real area of vulnerability. Graduate students have to commit to being in someone's lab for a really long time. And I'm not sure we have really good maps and guidance systems to help graduate students who very early in their PhD work have to find out which lab they're going to go to. They get to rotate in several labs, but even a short-term rotation, they don't necessarily get a feeling for whether that sponsor is really going to help them become creative and knowledgeable or just going to use them and have a toxic relationship. So that. That's a really different question for most residents because residency sponsorships are 
relatively short-term projects. But I think even for fellowship, if you're doing a research fellowship with somebody or you're part of your fellowship is involves in some, a lot of research, we need to find a better way to actually get references so people can call and talk to people who've worked with that person. Because you're investing potentially six months or a year or longer of your life with that person. Right. And if they're really selfish, if they don't really help you learn who you are or that you don't have a chance to work on something and get some credit for your effort, it's a big um, loss of time and also it's demoralizing. And we don't need to be demoralizing people. We need to be helping people feel successful and excited. And we need to be helping people get the skills so that they can get independent funding if they need that to continue. We don't need to be holding them back and pulling them down. Fortunately, there are not so many of those toxic people. Pathology tends to have nice people and tends to have really good people, but you'd still have to have some help and guidance looking through, through and figuring out. And those, I'm not very good at that. I like most people. Right. <laughs> so I, I, don't go in, I don't go into relationships with people with a sense of distrust and how are they going to use me. So I'm often, I don't see it coming when it does happen. And if it does happen to me, I usually just learn from it and move on. But, right. you know, I'm not the best person to ask. If someone says, what do, you, what do you know about so-and-so? I usually say, why don't you go talk to some of the people who spent time in that person's lab? Right. You know? So I know that you meditate and I know that there's this whole buzz about wellness and, you know, people poo-poo it because almost half the time the wellness activities are making them more stressed because they're forced upon them. And and then obviously other people embrace it. And I know that uh, at ASCP meetings, some of the yoga and meditation sessions were really highly attended. And that's wonderful. That's a wonderful thing. And so tell me about your take on wellness, how you in- implement it within your own life and how you tell others about it. Well, wellness is a very great place to talk about things because it's really a buzzword. And you've probably seen on Twitter, I have very strong feelings about it. So on the one hand, I meditate an hour every morning, an hour every evening. I exercise every single day for at least an hour, often more. And I eat extremely well. I don't smoke and I don't drink. I can't tolerate alcohol. So I have very good habits to keep myself strong and as emotionally fit as I can. And on the other hand, we blame the victim in healthcare. Mm -hmm. When I started in pathology, every academic pathologist, this is unbelievable, but we had 50% protected time without the expectation that we had independent funding to cover that 50%. So we had time to think. We had time to write papers. We had time to read and to go and collaborate with other people or even sit and have lunch together. If I were in your department, I could go and sit and have an hour lunch where we, it doesn't, it's not just eating. It's a chance to talk about all kinds of things and really learn from other people. And that's just really been blown out of the water by the RVU crunch in many departments. You get the only protected time you get is 13% to 17% for the required compliance training and faculty meetings that you're required to go to and things like filling out evaluations. And other than that, you're full-time on clinical service unless you buy your time off with a salary source from another place, such as a salary source from the dean's office to run a big pathology course or independent funding that will buy off some time from clinical service. So the the time for being able to sit and think and chew the fat and just digest information has really disappeared in most academic places. And there's no amount of meditation or exercise or good nutrition in the world that's going to help you if your time commitment is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. So I did an exercise about 10 years ago, and I talked about this in my talk at ASCP. I actually wrote down everything I was doing realistically. 
So if you have a 15-minute meeting every week, actually, it's not 15 minutes every week because you have to add in the time even to write it in the calendar or look up the agenda or think about what you're going to take to that meeting or prepare for that meeting. That ends up being more like probably an hour a week times if you take a month of vacation, that's 48 hours in a year. That is a week of your time. But when I did that exercise and added up every single time commitment that I had using only 10-hour days, I realized I was committed to work 410 days a year. <laughs> that defies the laws of <laughs> physics. And so I've come to believe, Kamran, that wellness is having the resources, whatever that means. That includes emotional physical, financial, material, having the resources that you need to be successful at the things that you are committed to do. Now, if the department is committing you to an RVU expectation and a turnaround time expectation that on the face of it is mythical. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're myth, if you have, 170 cases a day, every day, and a turnaround time that you're supposed to have 90% of the biopsies done within a day and 90% of the larger cases done within two days, it's not happening. Right. And so, but, the, but, but because that's the expectation that we've written down, as an individual, you feel unsuccessful. Because no one has the courage at the faculty meeting to say, this is not sustainable. None of us is ever going to be able to do this unless we're working all weekend long or 12-hour days. But then you're not a good husband. You're not a good father. You're not able to do a good lecture using old slides that you haven't thought about because you don't even have time to get that lecture ready. So you feel crappy because you're not keeping up with your clinical work. You're not keeping up with your relationships. You don't have time to pray or meditate. You don't have time to exercise. You start to eat chocolate and drink more coffee. Before you know it, you're burned out. And I have been right. burned out multiple times in my life. I've really had to crawl out of that. It's like being down in a hole in the ground when you're mm -hmm. burned out because you're demoralized and you're exhausted. It's really difficult. So what I've learned more than anything now is the signs of burnout before I get there so I can start to pull back from that. But I think we need more cultural courage to acknowledge that we're trying to do the impossible. The expectations for turnaround time and a number of cases without time off to sharpen the saw or to to get the skill sets resuscitated or to feel good about ourselves, to feel successful. So I, I actually get very angry about the wellness thing because, as I say, I think it's a blame the victim. Now, that said, there isn't any question in the world that I would be a lot worse off if I ate crappy food, if I didn't meditate, if I didn't exercise. Those things help me a lot. And I probably would have, you know, I'm over 70. I probably would have had a heart attack or burned out or quit 20 years ago if I hadn't done those wellness things along the way. But these are more like brushing your teeth every day. That's something you just have to do to stay well. But as I say, the bigger issue is how are we going to manage the workloads that we have so that we feel successful? No, this has been wonderful. Dr. Upton, thank you so much for your words of wisdom, for your time. Uh, you know, I can tell you from myself and also I'm sure all of our listeners that there's so much food for thought in all of your words. And we appreciate every single time and every single effort that you make towards us and towards all these amazing efforts that you're working towards. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show today. Well, thank you. Just, just remember, there is no one else living your life. And there's no one else with the perspective and skills and talents that you have. And so if you, if you can remember that, then you can recognize that you bring something to work every day that, that we need because others of us don't have it. But you have to really trust that you'll find your voice 
And you need to trust that saying and sharing the perspective you have is really a gift to the rest of us. It's not selfish. It's really important because that showing up with your own ideas is something I just I just pray that you will do that, that you will have the confidence and trust that you're here for a reason and we need to hear from you. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.